Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today I wanted to follow up on what I did back a few episodes ago, an episode, I think it was 141, and that's talk about a specific year in music and pivotal things that happened during that year that would shape music history. It's fun to do this because as we tend to commemorate our pasts, we in turn commemorate the music we listen to during that time. Because as music fans who are so dialed into music, we often recognize music as being emblematic of our pasts. Specific music, in fact, being emblematic of specific times and occurrences in our lives. And as I mentioned last time we did this in episode 141, because the things that happen musically and personally contribute to what a certain year might feel like, we're accessing the same territory as we would when we talk about what specific songs feel like when we bring guests in here on No Sleep Till Sudbury. So this week, let's talk about 1991. Lots of pivotal stuff happened this year. I was 21, I was in my third year university, and above all of the musical things that were going on, like the surge of new country, um, gangster rap, how the sugary pop of the 80s was starting to fade a little bit. The emergence of grunge really got my attention right away. And probably the biggest reason for this was that for the first time in my life, music was not being written necessarily for me. I had looked at all the first-year kids at school in their flannel shirts, and I realized that I was now looking in on a new music scene from the outside for the very first time in my life. And it was a weird feeling for me. What was also intriguing about it was that this new musical movement that people were calling grunge had summarily sucked the air out of another genre of music that had significantly compelled me in my teen years, and that was the hair band genre. In one fell swoop, all those Aquanet Revlon bands, Danger Danger, Trickster, Firehouse, Poison Warrant, all gone, leveled. A lot of people complain that grunge wiped out hair bands and that genre that people called hair metal or glam metal. But if you really think about it, the genre wiped itself out. Its fat, bloated body collapsed under its own weight and fell on its own sword, really. I'm being realistic here. I owned a lot of these cassettes from earlier in the 80s before things got really silly. The first records from bands like Rat, Poison, Cinderella, even Winger. But the problem was that the genre got so popular that everybody piled on the bandwagon wanting to make money, and it just turned into a ridiculous circus that couldn't be taken seriously anymore. The hair got bigger, the makeup got thicker, the playing got worse, and the music was less important than the image eventually, and by 1991, it was almost a Greek tragedy of of, of its own making, really. The genre just imploded. It wasn't being wiped out by anything. It died very much by its own hand, I think. Natural selection, plain and simple. Now, here's the intriguing part for me. A lot of the bands that people claim wiped out hair metal, like Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains, were really just playing the same kind of music. It was hard rock, guitars, bass, drums, vocals. But in essence, it was a non-saccharine, non-glam return to the basics. But because hair metal was so popular and glitzy and so over the top, grunge bands were that much more grimy and dark and angry in order to really truly dissociate themselves with that genre. And so the movement was an overcorrection in the same way that punk was an overcorrection of what's now called yacht rock. The pendulum can only go so far in one direction before it comes swinging right back the other way. 
And my intrigue lies in the fact that some musicians who would later be labeled as grunge or alternative, particularly ones who grew up in Washington State, had played in glam metal bands pre-1991. Alice in Chains used to be a glam band. They were called Diamond Lie for a short period. So you could say that there was almost this Darwinian type of evolution that happened where some musicians recognized the overblown silliness that was going on with hair metal. And while they continued to play the same music, they just played it in a more pure, uh, more organic way. Pearl Jam's Alive is a hard rock song. The guitar solo in the outro of the song is directly lifted even from a Kiss song called She. Pearl Jam guitarist Mike McCready publicly admitted that several times. STP's Sex Type Thing is a hard rock song. Alice in Chains' Man in a Box is a hard rock song. Hell, the song that kicked it all off, Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, is a rudimentary hard rock song, just without the glitter, the excess, and all the bullshit. I think what people called grunge was mostly just a hybrid of punk and metal. It combined that nihilism of punk with sludgy metal power chords. And by the way, none of the musicians involved in the movement ever called it grunge. Most of them hated the term, especially Kurt Cobain. Most of them just describe their music as rock. And speaking of Kurt Cobain, I think we can all agree that Nirvana was at the vanguard of the grunge movement. Their album Nevermind, which, by the way, was initially going to be called Sheep, but the band changed it to Nevermind just before release, just because Kurt Cobain recognized the title as being a metaphor for his life. The record's success was very much unexpected by everybody, including the band, Kurt Cobain told a reporter once that he intended Nevermind to sound like the Knack and Bay City Rollers being molested by Black Flag and Black Sabbath. But the secret behind the success of the record, in my opinion, is that it combined the poppy hooks of Nirvana-influenced bands like R.E.M. and Pixies with intense, crunchy, sloppy power chords delivered in a punk rockish kind of way. This was in tandem to that extreme variance in dynamics that you hear on most of the record quiet verse, loud chorus, and that would become a very popularly used device on lots of 90s recordings. It was like giving listeners both sides of the equation, beauty with ugliness, peace with chaos. Lyrically, most of the songs were written by Cobain about his dysfunctional relationship with Bikini Kill founder Toby Vale, and he even quoted actual things that she said to him. And even though Lithium was written before he met Vale, he apparently went back and rewrote the lyrics to reference her in Lithium. Cobain always said that he didn't care that much about lyrics in lieu of a song's melody. Melody was that much more important to him, and he absolutely hated when critics made inferences about his lyrics, especially because they often referenced them incorrectly. When the band were mastering Nevermind, they had asked that a hidden track called Endless Nameless be put in at the end of the record. During the mastering process itself, none of the band members showed up, so whoever mastered it didn't go ahead and actually do it, and it was left off the first 20,000 pressings of the record. When the band listened to their copy, Cobain freaked and insisted that the error be fixed, and it was. If you listen to later pressings of the record, you'll hear the song after about 10 minutes of silence following the end of Something in the Way. The band also wanted Nevermind to sound a lot more aggressive than it ended up sounding. After they had tried a couple mixes with producer Bush Vig, they decided to bring in a guy named Andy Wallace, who had recently mixed a Slayer record. That made the band happy, but years later, 
Right before his death, Kurt Cobain said he was embarrassed by Nevermind's mix and that it sounded more like a Motley Crue record than a punk rock record. Ouch. Nevermind was finally released in September 1991 by Geffen imprint DCG, who had hoped to sell 250 copies of the record. It was selling 400,000 copies a week by the end of 1991. The album went on to sell 30 million copies worldwide, becoming one of the greatest selling albums of all time. Now, Pearl Jam was probably the second most successful band of the grunge era, and they were definitely my favorite. I remember very vividly seeing the video for Alive on Much Music up here in Canada late one night in dorm after everybody had gone to bed. And I remembered the name of the band, but not the name of the song. And I had no idea what I was seeing, who the band was. This was pre-internet. And even though I described what I had seen and heard to others, nobody else knew what Pearl Jam was either. It was this big mystery. I watched much frantically for, for the next week, hoping to see the video again. I had no luck. Nothing in any of the Sudbury record stores either. It wasn't until I gave $20 to one of the dorm guys who was heading down to Toronto that weekend with the instructions to buy any Pearl Jam record he could find that I finally discovered their debut album, 10, which played over and over and over again incessantly from my dorm room, driving every one of my dorm mates absolutely crazy. The funny thing about Pearl Jam is that people accused the band of jumping on the grunge bandwagon after Nirvana's success, even though 10 was recorded and released before Nevermind. It just didn't catch on right away. And I liked that. I felt like the band was mine. And then after they did catch fire and all the flannel shirts started to come out, I realized they weren't. And the realization that the music was not being written for me and my generation anymore kicked in. The story of how the band got together is a cool one. Guitarist Stone Gossard and bass player Jeff Ament had played together in a band called Green River. After they broke up in the late 80s, they formed a band called Mother Love Bone, which was unfortunately short-lived following the overdose of Andrew Wood, the band's singer, in 1990. A while after that, Gossard wrote new material and connected Ament with another guitar player named Mike McCready. The three of them then recorded instrumental demos of Gossard's new material with Soundgarden drummer Matt Cameron and also with McCready's old drummer, Chris Feel, from his old band Shadow. They came out with five songs. Dollar Short, Ajitian Crave, Footsteps, E-Ballad, and Richard's E. Gossard assembled the songs in a demo tape, plaintively called Stone Gossard Demos 91, and he circulated it. A copy of the tape found its way to Eddie Vedder down in San Diego in September 1990 and Vetter took the liberty of writing lyrics for Dollar Short, which would later become Alive, and also for Ajitian Crave, which would be renamed Once. Gossard and Ament got the tape back with Vetter singing his lyrics over the instrumentation, and they flew Vetter to Seattle to audition for the band. In the interim, Vetter had written lyrics for E Ballad, and that song later became Black. Vetter and the trio, joined by drummer Dave Krusen, wrote 11 songs over that week that they would spend together. The band went into a studio in Seattle and recorded the album that we would come to know as 10 in just one month. 10, of course, being Mookie Blaylock's jersey number, by the way. The record was pretty dark, in keeping with that grunge overcorrection, with lyrics all written by Vetter, mostly focused on things like death, loneliness, and depression. A lot of people think that Alive 
is an uplifting, triumphant kind of song, but the lyrics actually reflect a dysfunctional relationship between a mother and her son, wherein the son finds out his father is actually his stepfather, his real father having died. Apparently, this was semi-autobiographical and actually happened to Vetter when he was 17. There were a lot of songs written during the recording sessions that didn't make it onto 10. Songs like Evil Little Goat, 2000 Mile Blues, Just a Girl. Footsteps had become a B-side for the Jeremy single. A song called Wash was the B-side for Alive. There were so many. Yellow Leadbetter, actually, was also written during that time, which of course went on to be a hit a few years later. It was probably left off 10 just because it sounds so Hendrixy and didn't quite fit. Another song that was rejected from the 10 sessions was a song called Brother. That song was left off because Gossard got tired of playing it. Jeff Ament, apparently, took offense to the idea and really liked the song, and he was so bitter about it being dropped that he almost walked away from the band. Drummer Dave Cruson did leave the band after they were finished the record, and he checked himself into rehab, citing a very serious drinking problem. And despite recording the album in only a month, decades later, Pearl Jam members would say in interviews how dissatisfied they were with the sound of the record, claiming that they killed the vibe with overproduction, too many overdubs, and way too much reverb. 10 was released in August 1991, and to this day it's considered to be Pearl Jam's most commercially successful record, selling more than 13 million copies worldwide. Along with Nirvana and Pearl Jam, there were a couple of other bands considered to be at the forefront of this movement, depending on how deep you go, of course. Groups like Mudhoney and Screaming Trees were definitely noteworthy, but when we think about this period, three predominant names come to mind in addition to Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Their Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Stone Temple Pilots. Soundgarden was actually formed much earlier than the other bands of their grungy ilk, way back in 1984, I think. I always thought Soundgarden was a bit of an outlier in the sense that they had more of a metal vibe, a higher vocal register, more prominent guitar solos, and they had that sinister metal sound in the same way that Pearl Jam always sounded more classic rock than they did punk or metal. And to a degree, I think that the idea speaks to the fact that the music business always sought to use labels and classifications in order to create hype and make money. And, you know, that's what businesses do. But the reality was that four of the five most commercially successful grunge bands, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, STP, and I would say Alice in Chains, were really just straightforward heavy rock bands who happened to be either from the Seattle area, signed to Sub Pop Records at some point, or emerged at roughly the same time. In a lot of ways, Soundgarden were a band that couldn't quite be labeled as a conventional metal band or a prog rock band. But for some reason, likely because they were from Seattle, found an audience in that Seattle grunge scene. But again, labeling was inevitable, and Soundgarden was called alternative when they weren't being called grunge, a term that described independent bands who were thought to be underground and stood apart from commercially successful bands, which of course turned out to be the greatest foible of 90s music in my mind, that peculiar irony that resulted from alternative music rising in popularity and eventually just becoming mainstream music. Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger record was released in 1991 and certainly got a lot of attention. Outshined and Rusty Cage became MTV staples, and Jesus Christ Pose was banned from MTV in response to a Christian community backlash. 
Chris Cornell, of course, tried to explain the song's true meaning, that the Jesus Christ pose was a metaphor for the manipulation of organized religion, but as always, people saw and heard what they wanted to see and hear. Didn't hurt the album, though. If anything, that sort of thing always helps by creating hype, the same way those explicit lyric stickers backfired on the PMRC. And Bad Motorfinger would be among the top-selling records of 1991. Stone Temple Pilots didn't release their first record until 1992, but for some reason they were also considered to be part of the grunge movement, this despite the fact that they were much more of a traditional rock band from San Diego, influenced by artists like David Bowie. They even had funk songs on their first demos for Core, actually. I think a lot of the grunge connection was because singer Scott Weiland's vocal delivery at times resembled Eddie Vedder's. STP was billed as grunge, but of the big five of that period... I would think that they were the least grungy of the bunch. They're always a little darker than the typical rock band, yes, but I always recognize them as a contemporary product of their influences. Bands like Aerosmith, the Rolling Stones, Bowie, and those sorts of bands. And I always thought of Wyland as more of a vocal chameleon, almost like Axl Rose, having a number of singing styles that he was known for. Sadly, Wyland was a tragic figure who would eventually be kicked out of STP, join Slash and the other Guns N' Roses expats in Velvet Revolver, and then be fired from that band, rejoin STP, only to be fired from STP once again. Given this trajectory, it seemed inevitable, sadly, that he would meet his demise sooner than later, all because of the very severe problems he was having with drugs and alcohol. And unfortunately, on December 3rd, 2015, Wyland was found dead on his tour bus, having accidentally overdosed on booze, pills, and cocaine. In addition to having the grunge tag in common, Stone Temple Pilots also shared another unfortunate trait with fellow grungers Alice in Chains. They also had a tragic figure as their frontman. Alice in Chains were in fact from Seattle, but the band morphed into a heavier version of its glam metal self called Alice and Chains, as in Guns and Roses. This was the name of singer Lane Staley's former band, who in fact used to be a drummer before he joined a glam metal band called Sleaze. They changed their name to Alice in Chains in 1986, but because their parents voiced their concerns about the bondage overtones, they changed the in to an apostrophe claiming to have done so before Guns N' Roses popularized the name years later. Staley eventually joined forces with guitarist Jerry Cantrell, who had just left his glam metal band, Diamond Lie. After considering naming their new band, Diamond Lie, they eventually settled on Staley's old band name, this time without the an apostrophe. Their early stuff, especially the single We Die Young, was essentially heavy metal with a darker, moodier Seattle feel, hence them being lumped in with the grunge scene, even though they were opening for hair bands at the time, like Poison and Extreme. Alice in Chains released their debut record Facelift in 1990, and by 1991 they were considered one of grunge's major acts. Their next record, Dirt, released a year later, would chart five singles but also very strongly hinted at the drug addictions that were evolving within the band. In 1994, Staley entered rehab after their next record, Jar of Flies, was released, and from there, things gradually fell apart, sadly culminating with Staley's death in 2002. 
He had become a recluse in his Seattle condo, not returning calls, not answering the door. On April 19th, one of Staley's accountants called his manager to say that no money had been withdrawn from his bank account for the last two weeks. A 911 call was then made by Staley's mother, who went to Staley's condo with the police. They discovered Staley's deceased body on the sofa, reportedly weighing only 86 pounds, even though he was six feet tall. Toxicology reports indicated that he died from a speedball, which is a mixture of heroin and cocaine. The autopsy determined that Staley died two weeks before his body was found. On April 5, the very same day Kurt Cobain died, eight years before. It's disturbingly grim to consider the fact that Eddie Vedder is the only frontman of these five bands who hasn't succumbed to suicide or a drug overdose, especially when you consider Mother Love Bone singer Andrew Wood in this group as well. I've discussed this point with other writers of Travel to Seattle myself to experience it firsthand even, wondering if there's a correlation between the city and the deaths that claim some of its greatest talents. And I personally believe there is. But more on that at a later time. This concludes part one of the year in music, 1991. And next week, we're going to look at some other things that happened over the course of 1991, including the fact that while grunge made its initial breakthrough in 1991, hard rock and heavy metal acts like Metallica and Guns N' Roses managed to hang on and in fact thrive. Lots more to talk about next week, folks. Connect with me on social media, Brent Jensen Music on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, it's Real B. Jensen. And my website is brentjensenmusic.com. Reach out. I'd love to hear from you. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury, and I'm Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. 